today's today's reading is from Exodus 15, 19 through 27. When Pharaoh's horses and chariots and charioteers rushed into the sea, the Lord brought the water crushing down upon them. But the people of Israel had walked through on dry land. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine and led all the women in rhythm and dance. And Miriam sang this song, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has thrown both horse and rider into the sea. Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved into the sure desert. They traveled in this desert for three days without water. When they came to Merah, they finally found water, but the people couldn't drink it because it was bitter. That is why the place was called Merah, which means bitter. And the people turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help. And the Lord showed him a branch. Moses took the branch and threw it into the water. This made the water good to drink. It was there at Merah that the Lord laid before them the following conditions to test their faithfulness to him. If you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and laws, then I will not make you suffer the diseases I sent on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. After leaving Merah, they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. They camped there beside the springs. I don't want to go to the beach. Beach is too sandy. I want to play video games. The water's too cold. I want to stay home. It's too crowded. It's too hot outside. There's stingrays and loud seagulls and jellyfish and sand crabs and sharks. Do you want me to get eaten by a shark? I don't like sunscreen. I don't like the sun. I don't like swimming. I don't like the sand. I don't like the icky bathrooms. <sighs> I just want to stay home. What if I get a sunburn? What if I get stung by a jellyfish? What if I get seasick? What if I get sand in my mouth? What if I get disoriented? What if I drop my hot dog in the sand? What if I get lost? I hope you people know what you're doing. It's too hot. There's sand in my toes. There's sand in my swimsuit. There's sand in my hair. There's sand sticking to my sunscreen. The sun is too bright. The water's too cold. I draw my hot dog in the sand. I knew this was gonna happen. kids I saw several of you with little ones chuckling at that because you know the reality of this but some of us know adults like this as well some of us are like this we complain sometimes so much 
we don't even realize how much we complain. But I do imagine that this was somewhat what Moses dealt with as they were walking through the desert, as he led the Israelites to the promised land. And we see the beginnings of those grumblings in our text this morning, where God reveals himself through another of his names. Because we are in a series on God's names. Because it's in his names that we learn about his character. It's in his names that we learn about who he is, in our relationship with him. Last week we talked about God is Jehovah M. Kadesh, meaning that he is the Holy One. He's set apart, and we're to be likewise. We've studied him as Lord Adonai. Lord and Master of all is who he is. And of course, he is the Lord who is the great I Am. Now in our text this morning, we learn that God is the one who heals. But a reading of our text, he didn't heal anybody. Not in the way that we think of healing, at least. You had to imagine that some of these Israelites, they were slaves in Egypt. They were beaten. They had to have some physical injury. And they've been traveling in the desert. There had to be some blisters on some feet or something. Some heat exhaustion. But there's no mention of anyone being healed physically. And yet, God still calls himself the one who heals. So what does this mean? What what is going on? Now let's do a little background up to our text this morning. Now the Israelites, were, they were being held hostage in Egypt. They were slaves. They were in bondage as slaves for about 400 years. And then Moses is called upon by God to bring them out of Egypt. And so Moses, after arguing with God a little bit, he goes to Pharaoh, who refuses to set them free. Then the mighty hand of God brings plague after plague and still Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go. Until the very last plague, where the firstborn male of every living creature is killed. But not the Israelites. Remember, the Israelites were told to take the lamb's blood, put it over their door frames, and they would be protected. So they saw the spirit of death Pass them by. Hence why they celebrate Passover today. And so now they've packed up and they're on their way. And Pharaoh changes his mind. And so he goes off, he takes his army, he says, we're going to bring them back. Now, meanwhile, the Israelites, they're at the edge of the Red Sea. They're wondering what to do. They're complaining that they were brought out to the desert just to die. This is how it's uh, worded in Exodus chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? 
What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Just like our video. And then they watched the single greatest miracle recorded in the Old Testament. Moses raises his staff in his hand, and the Red Sea is parted. And they walk across on dry land. And when they get to the other side, Moses, once again, he raises a staff in his hand, and the waters come crashing down on the chariots of the Egyptian army. And when the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They sing songs. They had a party singing songs and praising the Lord, celebrating his victory because they knew it was his victory. They knew that. They celebrate their rescue, their redemption from bondage, and then they hit a wall. How many of us do that? How quickly we can move from the mountaintop of praise up here down to the pit of hopelessness, doubt, and despair. And that's exactly what they did. You know, sometimes after our victories, we sometimes have to go through a desert. We experience disappointments to humble us, to mature us, to improve us, to heal us. See, God already knows what's in our hearts. He doesn't need to test us for his purposes. The deserts are not for him. The deserts are for us. See, he knows what's in our hearts, but he wants us to know what's in our hearts. And so we go through these times in the desert so we can see inside ourselves. Because a test is always to bring out the best in us. That's their purpose. You know, God doesn't deliver us to be independent from him. He delivers us so we know that he's there. God's desire, God's will is to bring us to wholeness. It's to spiritual health. That is his goal. He brings us to a place where we're forced to search for that fountain of the living God. Our desert experiences should bring us to that place where we thirst for more of him. God wants to use us in his plan. But in the words of the great theologian Oswald Chambers, you can't drink grapes. God has to squeeze us to get the wine out. And ironically, he gets the wine, W-I-N-E, out, but he also gets the wine, W-H-I-N-E, out as well. You know, church people are known for making their opinions heard. That's what we've become. We've become the people with opinions. Churches have split over opinions. 
There are always stories of people leaving churches because, oh, nobody listened to me. They didn't want to hear my opinion about the worship or about the color of the carpet. Guess what? God doesn't care about our opinions. He doesn't care what you think of the carpet. He doesn't care what you think of the worship style. He doesn't care what you think of the person standing up here giving you the message. What God cares about is you being obedient to what he's telling you to do. He cares about us submitting our lives to him. He cares about our relationship to him. He cares about your soul. That's what matters to him. And if you can sit in a church and complain about it, then you need to check your soul. And that's what God tells us. If you can sit there and complain, how is your relationship with me? God cares about healing us, restoring us to wholeness. Because when we're more concerned with me than with God's kingdom, that's when we become grumblers. In 1991, there was a book written. It's called The Culture of Complaint. Now, the author, Robert Hughes, this is what he says. He says, we live in a culture in which we perceive ourselves as being entitled to having all our wants and desires fulfilled. And when that doesn't happen, we become victims. We whine and complain and grumble. Does that sound like today? Sounds like our society today. Grumbling and, and complaining are really just a sign of discontent. It's a reflection of our carnal nature. But for the follower of Christ, it's a sign that you think God doesn't know what he's doing. God doesn't care how right you think you are. God doesn't care how you think things should be done in your life. He really doesn't. He, he will listen to you patiently, but in the end, he will have his way. Grumbling is really just a fumbling of the faith that we profess to have. If our Lord is the great I am, he is in control of everything. And so when a car accident happens, or we go out and we fall, we stub our toe, those things he's in control of. So he's either Lord or he's not. You see, in our places of disappointment, what we're really doing is looking for ways to fulfill our desires, get our needs met. The Israelites were thirsty for physical water, and they couldn't drink it because it was bitter. So in their disappointment, instead of turning to God, they turned from him. Remember everything that they had just seen. They had seen just magnanimous hand of God at work. And mind you, they walked for three days. Three days from the Red Sea to the bitter water, and they're complaining. 
it's important to note, you know, with the bitter water, the Israelites complained. Moses, on the other hand, he cried out to God. He turned to prayer. We can respond in two ways to our disappointments. To the things that discourage us. To the things where we feel hopeless. We have two options. We can respond the way Job did. Job lost everything. He lost his family, all his possessions, his wealth. He lost his health. Even his wife. What are you thinking, Job? God's forgotten you. Give it up. And Job said, no, my Lord, my God is there. I know he is. Or we could respond the way the Israelites did. They only needed water. That was all they needed. He had provided everything else. He had just freed them. And how did they respond? Complaining, grumbling. Oh, we're just out here to die, is what they said. How do we respond when God puts us in that place of disappointment when it doesn't work out the way we want? How do we respond? Because our disappointments are really God appointments. They're tests of our dependability upon him. And when we find our dependence upon him, that's where we find our wholeness. That is where we find our healing. See, our desert times, what they do is they strip away that fluff in our lives. They expose the truth of our hearts. It exposes where our strength really lies. Is it in ourselves or is it in our Father? In the middle of our trials, we always forget God's provision. We start to worry, we start to grumble and complain. Again, remember, it was three days, three days, three lousy days that they had seen these miracles, and they go right back down. God, what are you doing? We want to go back to Egypt. God led the Israelites to Merah. They didn't just happen upon it. And three things happened. He protected them on this journey. Lovingly, he cared for them. During the day, he was a cloud. Gave them shade. Protected them, guided them. At night, he was a pillar of fire. Guided them, kept them warm. He provided a way for them to be free. And then, even in their grumbling, even in their complaining, he patiently taught them lessons about their faith. See, God's number one concern is are we connected to him alone? Does my faith work because I'm plugged into him all the time? A lamp can only light a room when it's plugged into a source. 
A follower of Christ can only shine his light and live his faith out when he's plugged into the Father, the source of our power. And if we're not, then our faith is dead. It's not going anywhere. Our tests are not punishment. Our tests stretch us. Our tests mature us. They advance our spiritual growth. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says, Be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine, that it is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. God wants to heal you. He wants to make you whole. He is able to take the bitterness in our lives and restore it. Make it good. Make it sweet. The Israelites had no control over the condition of the water. They did have control over the attitude that they had. We have no control over our circumstances, oftentimes. But we do have control over how we respond. We must not let our circumstances override our faith. Don't let your disappointments get between you and God. What he's trying to show you is, where am I in your life? Where am I? I am here. You're there, and you keep going in the other direction. Come back to me. I'm here. There's one more thing to note in our reading. God didn't give them an alternative water source. He just healed the one they had. He took the bitter water and he made it drinkable. He made it sweet. God doesn't change our circumstances. He changes us. So often we want God to change our circumstances. But he heals us through them. We pray, God, this person, I don't like them. Please, take them away. Take them somewhere else. Remove them from my life. And God says, no, I'm going to heal the relationship. We pray for financial blessings to cover our debts. God wants to heal our spending habits. We pray for our dreams to be fulfilled now. I want answers now, Lord. The Lord says, I will heal you through patience. God's healing is about us changing perspective. It's about a change of heart. Through our trials and disappointments, he teaches us to be content. Not just when things go our way, but especially when they don't. Because it's easy to praise God when things are good. 
When we're thinking, oh, look at this, look at this, look at, I am living the good life, look at me. Anyone can praise God in those moments. That's easy. But it takes a measure of faith to praise God in the disappointments. It takes faith to praise in the trials. It takes faith to praise in the difficult times. We need to understand that grumbling and complaining denies God's power in our lives. When we see God as healer of only our physical maladies, we limit him. We mentioned at the beginning that there was no physical healing that took place here when God reveals himself, the one who heals, Jehovah Rapha. We need to stop thinking that our healing is meant to be physical. We hear Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. And frankly, I hate that verse because so many people use it wrongly. So many people say, well, Christians are not supposed to have illness. You are not supposed to have disease. See, by Christ's stripes you are healed. That is the most unscriptural thing that's out there right now. Peter recites that verse this way in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body and on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's referring to our sin. It's referring to our righteousness, not sickness and disease. Being healed in both of these instances is speaking of being forgiven and being saved. Not being physically healed, but spiritually healed. Jesus himself, you know, he came to heal spiritually. Listen to his words in the first chapter of Mark, starting in verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. And so he traveled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues. Jesus came to preach salvation. Jesus came to heal souls. He did not come to heal physical disease, but bring healing to spiritual disease. Can God heal physically? Absolutely. Does he heal physically? Absolutely. Does he heal everyone? No. God's given us so many examples of people who have not been healed. Look at Paul in the New Testament. 
He prayed for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. Did God remove it? No. No, my grace is sufficient, he said. Paul is one of the great faith evangelists in the New Testament. And he wasn't healed so clearly. It's spiritual healing because look at the faith that he had. Even today, we have people like Nick Vucic, who was born without arms and legs. And we saw him when we were in Kansas. Most incredible speaker. And he said this, he said, if God can use a man with no arms and legs to be the hands and feet of Jesus, what's your excuse? That's faith. But is God going to ever give him arms and legs? Not on this side of heaven. But there's a man of faith that is out there preaching the news of Jesus. Because that's what healing does. Even Johnny Erickson Tata. This was her quote. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his hold upon me. What a beautiful imagery for us. And I know many of you, you're suffering with physical ailments. You're praying for God to take them away, and he doesn't. But I want to tell you, you know what? God sees your faith. God knows your heart. And he is using it as a witness to others. I want to just encourage you. Your faith, because of whatever you're suffering through physically, he sees it. And think of the words he said to Job, that God said to Job. Have you met my servant Job? He is proud of you. He has your picture on his refrigerator. Saying, have you met my servant Dale? Have you met my servant Mary or Terry or Aaron or Tom or Debbie? Have you met them? Because look, look what they are doing with their lives. Look how they're representing me to the world through their suffering, through their ailments. Look at what they're doing. That's healing. That's the healing that God was talking about. Spiritual healing, shining that light, knowing that he's in control of it, even when you don't like it, even when it hurts. He's still in control, and you praise him through it anyway. That is Jehovah Rapha. That is who we praise. That is who we worship. God gave the Israelites three steps for their spiritual healing. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, and if you do what is right in his sight, and if you obey his commands... There's no room for argument there. Healing cannot be separated from obedience. There's an old saying, 
When life gives you lemons, throw them at people who annoy you. No, that's not it. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. But this text would say, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, but do it God's way. Do it God's way. Don't think that you can do it on your own. Where is there bitterness? Where is there discontent in your life? We all have those maras in our lives, those wells of disappointment, those wells of discontent. You know, I've shared with you before how every time I study and prepare for a message, God really, he just hits me over the head. Friday, Debbie and I were at Denny's, and I had been sick. You know I had been sick from our trip in Kansas. I was sick for about two weeks, and, and then this past week something else came up, another health issue, and so I was out another day. And So we sat down for breakfast, and Debbie said, so how are you feeling? And I just started rattling off, and, and I could hear God saying, do you not remember what your message is about on Sunday? She's just laughing. Because I thought, oh my goodness, I am complaining. I don't even recognize when I'm complaining. There's discontent in my life, but I didn't even recognize it. And we all do it. It's that carnal nature in us. But we need to pray. Lord, show me. Show me where I'm discontent. You know, we can't bypass the trials in our lives. We cannot detour around them. We cannot skip over them. We can't tunnel underneath them. Jesus told us we would have trouble. But when that trouble hits, where do you go? Where do you look? Every complaint against our circumstances, every grumble about the weather, our job, our family, is directed against our God. What is God speaking to you this morning? Pray to hear his voice. Pray for those areas of discontentment. Because it is getting in between you and God. Give it to him. Let him heal you. Let him restore you. Let him lead you to wholeness. That's his deepest desire for you. Because there's an Elim on the horizon. The last verse in our reading this morning said, After leaving Merah, the Israelites traveled on to the oasis of Elim, where they found 12 springs and 70 palm trees. And that's where they camped, beside the water. There's an Elim just beyond your trial, just beyond that well of disillusionment and disappointment. But God wants your wholeness. He wants our spiritual healing over our earthly comforts. No matter what you're facing today, recognize that God's completely trustworthy. He can deliver you out of it. Know God as Jehovah Rapha, your healer. Let your disappointments draw you to God, not away from him.
Let his healing hand watch over you and protect you. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our grumbling. Forgive us for complaining. Forgive us for not seeing your hand in all areas. Forgive us for the for the lack of awareness that you are in control even in those hard times. Lord, we need healing. We want to know you better. We want to know you as Jehovah Rapha. Reveal to us the discontent in our hearts so that we can be used by you so that we can leave this place, that we're challenged, that, that we are encouraged, reminded that you are our healer, that no matter what we face, no matter what we go through, you are there for us. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.